Welcome to another episode of NeuroPodCases, a clinical neuroscience podcast. Hello, welcome to another episode of NeuroPodCases. Um, today we're going to discuss something a little bit different. We're going to discuss hyperbaric oxygen therapy and its uses, in particular for neurological presentations. And today I'm joined by Dr. Jeremy Mason, who's a specialist registrar in emergency medicine with a subspecialty interest in diving and hyperbaric medicine. Uh, And he works in Perth, Western Australia. And I'm Josie Mayer. I'm a neurology trainee uh, working in the UK. Morning, Josie. Thanks very much for having me today. So our first case is of a 28-year-old diver. He's right-handed and has no past medical history. And this morning he was well, um, but during the day he had multiple long scuba dives in cold water, not using a dive computer. He had short surface intervals. He presented to the emergency department after developing a symptom onset 20 minutes after surfacing from his fourth dive. His symptoms have progressed over the following two hours and he is describing dizziness and a spinning sensation like vertigo. He's complaining of pins and needles or paresthesias in his right arm and complains of headache and shoulder pain. On examination, he has horizontal nystagmus and he has a wide-based and steady gait, but power and reflexes are all normal and he has flexor planters. What is your initial impression for this patient? So my impression is that they probably have decompression sickness. So without knowing the exact dive profile, they've had a very risky dive with multiple dives during the day. You said that they were diving very deep and in very cold water. And all of these increase the risk of um, what we call decompression sickness, which we'll talk about later in the podcast. So what is decompression illness? So decompression illness is an umbrella term for two distinct diseases caused by bubble formation. But in order to understand the two different diseases, you need to understand a couple of physics laws first. So the first one is Boyle's law. So Boyle's law says that the volume of a gas is inversely proportional to the pressure provided the temperature and mass are constant. So for an example of this, if you're a scuba diver at depth and you take a lungful of compressed air at depth, As if you hold your breath and you ascend, the volume of gas in your lungs is going to expand. So where that causes trouble is if you were to ascend rapidly, that gas will expand and potentially cause damage to your alveoli and cause pulmonary barotrauma. So that gas that's expanding, if you've got a closed glottis, can then arterialise and go into your arterial system, go to your brain. That causes a condition called cerebral arterial gas embolism, or CAGE. So in CAGE, patients uh, commonly present with neurological symptoms on surfacing from a dive, and that's from the direct effects of air from the pulmonary barotrauma going through their arterial circulation and preferentially travelling upwards and causing direct damage to the brain. For decompression sickness, uh, there's a slightly different, the physics is slightly different. So there's a law called Henry's law. And in Henry's law, Henry's law says the amount of any given gas that would dissolve in a liquid at a given temperature is a function of the partial pressure of that gas in contact with the liquid. So a simple way to think about that is when you open a bottle of champagne. So 
when the bottle of champagne is closed, um, there's no bubble formation, all the gas is super saturated in the liquid. When you open the bottle of champagne, then the ambient pressure around that liquid um, suddenly goes down and the, the gases that are dissolved in that solution are suddenly super saturated compared to the ambient pressure and the bubbles will come out of solution and, and fizz. So putting Henry's law into clinical context, when you breathe compressed air at depth, your tissues will become saturated with the gas that you're breathing. Commonly scuba divers that are diving with air will breathe air at depth in their tanks. So air is obviously a combination of mostly nitrogen, oxygen, some carbon dioxide. Oxygen and carbon dioxide are metabolized, so they don't really cause any issues. However, the nitrogen will supersaturate your tissues if you're breathing compressed air at depth. The partial pressure of nitrogen in your tissues will depend on the length of time that you spend at depth and the, the depth that you go to. So the deeper you dive, or the longer you dive, the more nitrogen will be dissolved in your tissues. And that increases what we call your nitrogen load. You need to be cautious about your during your ascent because as you ascend, the ambient pressure caused by the water reduces. Now what this means in your tissues is that the nitrogen will start to form bubbles and actually come out of solution if you ascend too quickly. What that can do is cause bubbles forming in the tissues and also in the venous system. And most of the time, these bubbles will then go through the venous system, go through the right-hand side of the heart and get filtered out by the lungs in the majority of people. Um, there are certain situations where your pulmonary filter can get overloaded and bubbles can potentially go all the way through your lungs and then cause problems in the systemic circulation. About 35% of patients will actually have a right-to-left shunt caused by a patient foramen ovale. So that can cause trouble for divers because as they ascend, if they're forming bubbles because nitrogen is coming out of solution, those bubbles won't necessarily be filtered by the lungs and they can travel from the right-hand side to the left-hand side of the heart. And that will cause systemic arterialization of those bubbles. And those bubbles can then travel really to anywhere in the body and cause problems, be that by mechanical compression, by direct endothelial damage to the capillary beds, or be it by occlusion causing distal ischemia in different tissues throughout the body. So those are the two mechanisms by which the umbrella term decompression illness occurs, and it's either due to one of those two physical laws really. So the two kind of syndromes that you describe, the cage and the decompression sickness, can you tell us how they present? You can try and work out what's going on based on the history and examination and the dive profile, but it's not always obvious to differentiate between the two. But um, classically, a, a patient that has cage, um, there'll normally be a, an issue during the dive, so something would have caused them to have a rapid ascent generally. Now divers are always taught to exhale on the ascent to try and prevent this problem. Um, because as the lungs will expand, as the, the gas expands, it's important to breathe out during the ascent. So if you have a closed glottis, perhaps patients are panicking, um, or perhaps they're bouncing up and down and not really aware of their depth, then they will get the cerebral arterial gas embolism. So typically that will present with 
symptoms immediately on surfacing because they're having a barotrauma, the air's going straight away directly from their lungs into their systemic circulation and causing issues with their brain. So there's a variety of symptoms that it can cause, but generally on surfacing patients will have a whole array of neurological symptoms. They can be unconscious, they can have a monoparesis, a hemiparesis, they can have uh, dysphasia, ataxia, any kind of neurological symptom really, depending where the gas goes in their brain. Patients with CAGE, 5 to 10% will actually die from the event. About 30% of patients, their symptoms may remain static from when they surface, and about 60% of patients will spontaneously recover. Of the people that get CAGE, about 50% will suffer a progressive relapse, and that's due to the inflammatory effect of the bubbles stripping that endothelial layer of the blood vessels that they travel through. So decompression sickness can also present with a whole array of symptoms, depending on the location of uh, bubble formation. So although you can get gas dissolving out of the tissues during the ascent from a dive, typically the symptoms will start within the first sort of two to four hours after surfacing from a dive. So you don't always get that sudden onset of symptoms like you would expect with a cage, but things can develop gradually as the nitrogen is slowly dissolving out of the tissues. The symptoms that people get really vary depending on where the bubbles are being formed and which tissues. Probably the most common symptom is musculoskeletal pain and people often present with pain in their shoulders or elbows or knees. People can also get other neurological symptoms um, with headaches or weakness in different areas or paresthesia. The inner ear is also uh, susceptible to decompression sickness so people can present with vestibular cochlear symptoms with uh, nystagmus or ataxia or even tinnitus and hearing loss. And another presentation of decompression sickness is actually a rash, um, which is a, a patchy purplish rash of cutis marmorata, which is pathognomonic of decompression sickness. What's the mechanism by which the gas in the systemic circulation causes neurological damage? So there's a number of mechanisms um, by which uh, air or gas can cause injury to cells and to neurons. The first one is as a bubble travels through, it can cause, well, it causes trauma to the endothelial layer. So that direct trauma can cause uh, edema to the surrounding tissues and neurons. It can also cause platelet aggregation and inflammation and activation of um, cytokines and interleukins. As the bubbles flow through as well, as they get into smaller capillary beds, they can actually cause distal occlusion as well. Particularly if, the, if there's sort of showers of bubbles coming through, then as the endothelial layer gets sort of stripped and inflamed, the bubbles actually have been shown to travel slower and slower. So initially the first shower of bubbles may travel fairly quickly through the capillary beds. As the um, inflammation increases, then uh, the bubbles will actually travel slower and it increases the risk of them completely occluding vessels and causing distal ischemia. What would your initial management be in the emergency department if this patient presented to you? So in the emergency department, I would treat them with IV fluids, 
make sure they've got some analgesia on board if they're in pain and particularly giving them anti-inflammatories because they're shown to help with the actual disease process as well as helping with pain. Make sure they're really well hydrated, that they've got a good urine output. Um, and I'd also put them on oxygen via a non-rebreather mask, uh, 15 litres per minute. Now, depending on the clinical context, if there's any suspicion, if they had a cerebral arterial gas embolism, then you'd want the patient to be lying flat because if they have a large amount of air in their systemic circulation, you'd want to prevent further damage and you wouldn't want the air to travel to their brain. Following that, what other things can you do to help the patient? Yeah, so the definitive treatment for this patient needs to be with hyperbaric oxygen therapy in a hyperbaric chamber, um, where you give patients oxygen at increased atmospheric pressure. Um, and there's treatment tables that are used throughout the world. And the treatment tables essentially vary in terms of the depth that you put the patient to and uh, the duration that the patient breathes oxygen for. And they're fairly standardised in terms of the treatment of divers at least. And that's the initial treatment that you would give a diver presenting with decompression sickness. So what that table means is that the patient's treated in a chamber and they're given 100% oxygen to breathe, either via a hood or via a bib. The chamber's compressed to 2.8 atmospheres, which is the equivalent of 18 metres under seawater. And once at the bottom, 100% oxygen is applied to the diver. The diver gets uh, air breaks after about 20 minutes of oxygen to minimise the risk of oxygen toxicity. After the third air break, the chamber is brought up to 9 metres and 100% oxygen is again applied for 60 minutes and they get a 5 minute air break and then another 60 minutes on oxygen, followed by the ascent back to the surface. The total length of treatment for that table is 4 hours and 45 minutes and there's a potential to extend the table either at 18 metres or at the 9 metre depending on how the patient's pro progressing with their symptoms. Can you describe what, what actually the chamber involves and what people would do if they were going in to have you know, hyperbaric oxygen therapy? Yeah sure, so there's two different types of chambers generally that we use. So there's either the, what we call a monoplace chamber where a patient goes in there on their own. Commonly they look like an acrylic tube. Um, the patient goes in there, they generally have communications with the outside and it's driven by a hyperbaric technician outside. They control the oxygen, they control the gas, they control the pressure from the outside, but the patient's inside on their own. They're commonly breathing oxygen via a mask. The environment in the chamber is actually air. The other type of chamber that we have is called a multi-place chamber. The benefit of a multi-place chamber is an attendant can also go inside. So if the patient's unwell and they need an attendant to be with them, a nurse or a hyperbaric attendant, then that's possible in the multi-place chamber. So depending on the size of the chamber, you can treat several patients at the same time. In a multi-place chamber, the environment inside the chamber is again air, and the patients will breathe oxygen either via a mask or via a hood system with a rubber seal around their neck. Is hyperbaric oxygen therapy used for any other conditions? So there's a few neurological conditions that we also use it for, such as central retinal artery occlusion. It's also sometimes used in intracranial abscesses, particularly if there's multiple abscesses or a deep location, or if the host is compromised in any way, or if the abscess is fungal. So it's also used in some sensory neural hearing loss. 
and in particular patients presenting within 14 days of symptom onset that have a moderate to profound idiopathic sensory neural hearing loss. So how does it work? Yeah, so there's several mechanisms by which hyperbaric oxygen therapy works. Firstly, it causes a hydrostatic compression of the bubble, leading to a bubble volume reduction. So it can also enhance the inert gas diffusion gradients between the bubble, tissue and lungs, leading to bubble volume reduction again. The high arterial partial pressures um, of oxygen that are generated cause enhanced oxygen diffusion and restoration of tissue normoxia, enhanced phagocytosis and also angiogenesis and fibroblast activity, which can help with wound healing and radiation tissue injuries. The high partial pressure of oxygen also has an osmotic effect, causing reduction in tissue edema. The reactive oxygen and nitrogen species are generated, causing hyperoxic vasoconstriction and further edema reduction, along with an increase in wound growth factors and stem cell mobilisation. It can also reduce B2 integrin function. How, how does it work in central retinal artery occlusion? So in central retinal artery occlusion, the inner retinal layers, which include the ganglion cell layer and inner nuclear layer, lose their vascular supply and there is subsequent visual loss. In normoxia, 60% of the retina's oxygen comes from the choroidal circulation, but under high oxygen conditions, this can be increased to 100%. And the occlusion has to be distal. So if there's a proximal occlusion in the ophthalmic artery and the posterior ciliary vessels are also blocked, then there's no collateral circulation to provide supply to the retina. Great, thank you very much. Thank you for listening. For more information about this episode, please visit our website at neuropodcases.co.uk.